My name's Robin Archer and I'm the director of the Ralph Miliband program here at the London School of Economics. And it's a, it's a great pleasure to, a great pleasure indeed to invite our two speakers tonight uh, who are going to be conversing with, uh, with one another, Shirley Williams and Mark Bostridge. Um, Shirley Williams is someone that I suspect all of you will know. She's had at least three remarkable careers. She's been a powerful and important leader and minister in the Labor governments of the middle and uh, third quarter of the 20th century. She's a founder of the Social Democratic Party and subsequently an important leader of the Liberal Democrats. And not content with that, she's gone on to have an academic career as a professor in the Kennedy School at Harvard University, where she's made a series of important contributions. And I think that doesn't exhaust the things that she's done. I mean, she's really a remarkable person. And if you've heard her contributions to public debate, you'll know, as I do, what a trenchant speaker she is, what an insightful speaker she is, and um, her capacity, her sort of resolutely analytical capacity to deal with matters of public policy and public importance. And I think she stands out as uh, one of the most important sort of politician intellectuals, if you like, that come out of Britain in recent decades. Oh, do go on. <laughs> <laughs> but she's here tonight to talk about her mother, um, who, as you know, was a very important uh, feminist, uh, radical and pacifist Vera Britton, and whose um, memoirs uh, have, have marked many, many uh, people who've read them over many decades. And it's, it's for that reason that we're particularly delighted to invite Mark Bostridge to conduct the conversation with Shirley Williams. Mark has written a series of books... Um, he, he wrote or co-wrote the biography of Vera Britton. He then collected her letters and he has uh, since that produced a volume of Vera Britton's prose and poetry during the First World War period. And he's done other things beyond that. Um, he's written a prize-winning biography of um, Florence Nightingale, I think, and he's also been very uh, importantly involved in a film of Testament of Youth, which is about to be released in Britain, I think on the 15th of January, is that right? 16th. 16th of January, on the 16th of January, um, uh, called Testament of Youth, just like the biography. So, as I say, I'm very pleased to have these two speakers here today to contribute to our series on war and peace. Um, they're going to have their conversation for about 45 or 50 minutes, and then we should have a lot of time for questions and discussion from the floor, um, and it, it will end sharply at 8 o'clock because um, our speakers have to press on to another engagement in another continent. So we're particularly delighted. Can I ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Shirley Williams Mark Bostridge. Thank you very much, Robin. Um, as Robin says, I co-wrote the authorised biography of Vera Britton almost 20 years ago, um, and I've known Shirley all my adult life, actually. Uh, so if you see me getting a bit short with her or telling her to hurry up her answers. It's not that I'm being rude, it's simply because I have a certain degree of familiarity, I suppose. Um, I'm going on too long. Too long. <laughs> no. um, 
But um, as Robin said, we're here to talk about um, Shirley's mother, Vera Britton, who was born in 1893 and died in 1970. Um, for those of you who don't know a little bit of background about her famous book, Testament of Youth, which was one of about 29 books she published uh, in her lifetime, um, she served as a voluntary aid detachment nurse during the war, interrupting her studies at Oxford in order to do so. Um, she lost... Uh, her fiancé, two close friends, and most devastatingly, her brother, during the war, and in the course of the 1920s um, became an important campaigning equality feminist, um, a speaker for the League of Nations. Um, and then in 1933, she published Testament of Youth, which I'm sure many of you will know, um, which remains one of the most extraordinary accounts, personal accounts, testimonies of, of the First World War, um, the British experience of the First World War. Uh, in 1937, four years after the publication of the book, she took the plunge and became a pacifist um, and never deviated from that uh, for the rest of her life. Um, as Robin said, there is a film coming out on the 16th of January, which has taken six years in development. Very difficult to make a film like that now when there are so many big franchises um, going on. Some of you will remember the, the wonderful television adaptation at the end of the 70s starring Cheryl Campbell, which played a decisive role in um, resurrecting the book, in, in making the book um, a famous book again for a new generation and it's never been out of print since so the first question I really wanted to put to Shirley was do you think your mother would have been surprised by the extent of interest in her now um, more than uh, well, how many years is it since she died it's 40 yeah. 40, 45 44 years Oh. Yes, I think she would have been amazed. Uh, I, I think I've, you and I have talked about this before, but it's worth repeating that not long before she died, um, she became very ill in the last year or so, but before that onset, uh, she said to me that she hoped that she might be remembered, and I'm quoting her exactly, as, believe it or not, a niche East Midlands author well-known in that region. Now, her family was from Staffordshire, uh, she was brought up only till the age of about 16 in Buxton. She then went on later to Oxford two years later and then never really went back and lived in that region again. So the fact that she thought that she might be remembered as a niche author, I suppose the only other really well-known niche author from East Staffs would have been, what's his name? Arnold Bennett. Arnold Bennett, yes. And I recently spoke to the Arnold Bennett Society, and I suppose my mother might have hoped that there was a Vera Britain Society, which was attended by a few people from Stafford and Stoke. She didn't see herself by that time as likely to be regarded as a, an almost immortal author. I think she would have possibly thought that might be true back in 1937, when she was a best-selling author throughout the world. But then, as often happens with authors, there was a decline in, the, uh, in her fame, a decline in her people who knew about her. And it did look for a while, in about 1939-40, as if you know, she'd had her day, people had read it, she'd been a bestseller, now she was going to slip away into relative obscurity, which is what happens to a great many authors. I think, I think Mark would agree. I mean, I would think I was surprised that somehow 
largely because of the 1979 television series, uh, and also because of Virago, which some of you remember, the great publishers Virago, chose and picked out women authors who were beginning to be forgotten. Antonia White was an example. <coughs> and suddenly brought them back into prominence. And it was that those two things together that suddenly pitched my mother into a different level altogether. And that she has, as Mark said, never looked back since. She's become, in a sense, one of the canon of 20, 20th century authors. And I don't think she would have expected that. She would have thought it was unbelievably marvellous. And if she knows what we're saying, she would be thrilled to bits. I, I think, um, I mean, one of the changes that has occurred since we commemorated the 50th anniversary of the outbreak of war in 1964 is the shift away from a purely military perspective. Um, And obviously the women's perspective on the war is is very important, but if you look at the BBC's landmark Great War series, which came out in 1964 and 65, out of about 15 hours, about seven minutes were devoted to women's experience of the First World War. So you can see how enormously um, that has changed. But I suppose since we're here in a series of lectures about war and peace, it's worth, I think, emphasising at the beginning that... Um, your mother had, in a sense, quite a conventional view of the war at the beginning. At the beginning. Yep, absolutely. And I often think that's partly attributable to the fact that, I mean, she's very excited when the war breaks out. She writes in Testament of Youth, the very opening sentence of Testament of Youth is, when the Great War broke out, it came to me not as a superlative tragedy, but as an interruption of the most exasperating kind to my personal plans. Now, that's not really true, and I can see why she's writing it in in that way, but if you look at her diary and her letters, which have been published in the 80s and 90s, She's actually very excited by the war. The reason why she wrote that, I believe, is that she was very keen to frighten people, especially women who she regarded as politically lethargic in the 1930s, to get up and take notice of current events. And so she exaggerates her own ignorance in 1914. But do you think it's partly because in 1914, the men in her life, the young men in her life, are much more important than any woman, and she's identifying with them to a great extent? Partly that, but, uh, but you know, one of the things I go on about, and I think it's important to go on about it, is the extent to which the young men, most of whom were at public schools and then became officers, in the First World War, and in many ways Mark will say something about this, but I think the First World War is colossally marked by class assumptions, class hierarchy. So that, for example, a young man who goes to a well-known, what we nowadays call an HMC school, would be expected to work to be trained and to become an officer extremely fast. Um, A young man who was equally able but went to a council school, would not be so expected. He would be lucky to be more than a non-commissioned officer. So you get this very class-structured pattern of military engagement in the First World War, much more than in the Second. Very many people were never promoted, though they might have been brilliant in the battlefield, because it was assumed that they didn't really fit into the conventions. And one of those conventions was the romanticised view of war, which you get from what many of those young men read when they were boys, which were Tennyson, the Idols of the King, King Arthur and the Round Table, the picture of warrior 
as being a kind of glorified figure. There are strange, by the by, strange echoes with jihadi today because somehow to be a warrior, to throw your life into the pot, to think that you were working for the most absolute goals, came out of that tradition in the UK and probably, for all I know, comes out of Islamic story tales in the case of young men now becoming jihadis. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think there was this hugely romanticised view of war and that that was true of the First World War in a way I think it never was true of the Second World War and certainly hasn't been true of almost any war since from Vietnam to Afghanistan. I think one of the, the most striking things that Testament of Youth does is it portrays um, the disillusionment that the four young men in Vera Britain's life felt as they discovered that um, the mechanised war of early 20th century was not the kind of war that they'd expected, and that's, that's one of the sort of, um, sort of terrible sort of things that the, the, the book portrays. Um, but I suppose... Uh, do you think your mother sort of... I mean, for instance, in, in her diary, she calls the Battle of the Somme, the first day of the Battle of the Somme, in which her brother was badly injured, one of the greatest days in history. Now, you won't find that phrase when she writes about the same event in Testament of Youth 17 years later. Um, and I wonder the extent to which your mother is... She portrays so well um, the fatal idealism of the men, but she stands back a bit from exposing herself. Well, Why th do you think that is? I think she shared the idealism of the men. They were... Well, it's worth saying that apart from her, that, that one was a big, her brother and the other was a fiancé, they were, in fact, very much a group of young people where she's almost allowed to be a fellow boy hmm. and treated like a fellow boy. They go swimming together, they play tennis together, they're in a grouping that shares one another's ambitions and aspirations. Not any very strong sense of being a woman so you're never able to rise to these levels. I think one of the things that the young men around her did was to include her in, in a way that very few girls were included in at that time. So she did, you're quite right, she did identify with them and with their ambitions and so on. One of my favourite things to say to a modern audience, if any of you get taken around the Houses of Parliament, um, or ever have been, then insist on going to the throne room. If you go to the throne room, which is pure Victorian from beginning to end, I mean, it's, a, it's absolutely part of the Barry uh, Pugin tradition, you will find all over the walls are big wooden plaques which are meant to represent the great Victorian virtues. Incidentally, those virtues, you might guess, I'll give you one to start with, hospitality, there's uh, courage, there's religion, there's hope. But those great Victorian virtues are every single one of them represented by a tableau from King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, Sir Lancelot, Gawain of the Green Knights, and all the rest of it. So the marriage between what was, as it were, Victorian secular religion and the perception of the legend of King Arthur and the Knights is absolutely at one. It's identified one with the other in a way that all those young men were brought up on. And those pictures come from their storybooks, and the poems they read were from the Arthurian legend. And even now you can see the Arthurian legend somehow paled in the background. 
And I mention that because I think that's one of the reasons why people had such an idealised view of the war. And it took probably a couple of years for that idealised view to, to fall back into the kinds of things that Wilfred Owen has to say, for example, uh, in the Dorchy at Decorum Est. And one I'd like to remind you of, uh, I think it's one of the key sentences in the whole story of the First World War, was, of course, that remarkable phrase from... Rupert Brooke, who became the early hero, the early poetic hero in a sense, the idealist of the First World War. Now God be thanked who has blessed us with his hour. He wrote that in 1914. And it's, in effect, what it says is this is going to purge us of the materialism, the gluttony, the comfort, the illusions of our parents. It's quite a strong phrase for a young man of 19 or 20 to make about the generation of his, pre- of his parents and of their friends and their surroundings. And what it really says is war will clear out the hypocrisy, which is fundamental to the Victorian age. And, of course, I mean, actually, Vera Britton got hold of, Roland, uh, sorry, of Rupert Brooke's poetry um, shortly after it was published and sent it out to Roland Leighton in France, who, of course, wanted to be a poet. He tries to tell her in his letters that war isn't like this, uh, in a sense, she doesn't actually take any notice of what Ronan Leighton is telling her, and it creates a sort of chasm between them. But even as late as, I think, March or, yeah, March 1916, so about four months after Ronan Leighton, her fiancé, is killed, Vera Britton is still writing to her other friends, to her brother, war is a great purgation. And I think, I would argue with, against what Shirley says, that I think it's very difficult to understand what the British nation thought about the war, whether it ever really, large parts of it, became disillusioned with the war. I think there's a lot of disillusionment with post-war society um, in the 20s when there isn't a land fit for heroes. But I think we interpret the First World War still through, we see it through the prism of the disillusionment literature that starts emerging in the late 20s, Sassoon, London, Graves, and so on. Um, And we have to remember that the readership for books like that is actually quite narrow. It's a middle-class one, it's a literati one. At the same time as those books are being published, there are still plenty of books being published glorifying the war, glorifying the sacrifice of the dead because of course if you had lost people during the war you weren't about to, to, to admit, to yourself very easy, admit to yourself very easily that they had died for nothing or for, for, a, for, a, for a, something that wasn't a, that kind of military ideal. Picking up what, what um, Mark says about the, the way that we created or recreated the First World War in a, in a kind of literary image, the historic image. Um, I was very struck by the fact that this this afternoon I went to the Commonwealth Parliamentary Association to talk about the contribution made to uh, the British Army in the First World War by, at that time, the imperial countries, the Commonwealth countries, if you like. It is quite staggering in this year where the BBC, I think, is doing a very good job of trying to commemorate the First World War how very little attention has been paid to those Commonwealth countries. Most people know about Canada. Most people know about Australia and New Zealand. Almost nobody knows that 60,000 Indians lost their lives in the First World War and that 600,000 were conscripted or volunteered to come to countries which they didn't even know the name of and knew nothing about. 
and lost their lives in the ratio of 10 to 1, which is roughly the way it was for the other parts of the empire that were not the Commonwealth countries. People don't remember and don't know that the number of lives that were lost in the African War were greater than the number of lives proportionately that were lost in the, uh, across the Channel in France and Belgium, so that they don't remember very much about the East African regiments and the striking fact that the great majority of those who lost their lives in Africa and in huge proportions in Gallipoli were not soldiers. They were carriers of ammunition, carriers of food. They were employed in that capacity. They were laborers rather than soldiers. They lost their lives in vast proportions and very few people, even in this country, uh, remember now the scale of that loss. It is quite striking. It truly was a world war, but most people in Britain, I think, still think of it as being essentially a war in France, Belgium, and thereabouts, and don't realise or remember or recall the huge losses that were made in other parts of the, of the world, including, of course, in the whole of the Middle East and in the, what had been the Ottoman Empire. Um, in order to understand Testament Youth, we'd need sort of hours, because it, it actually is a much more complicated book, the way it's put together, than, than has hitherto been recognised. I mean, one of the complicated things about it that I've tried recently to sort out is the fact that Vera Britton started writing it as a novel, didn't only write one novel version, as she says in the foreword to Testament Youth. Obviously, if you're writing, if you're desperately trying to, to, to sell a book, you're not going to say in the foreword, where actually I wrote about 16 versions of this as a novel, and then gave up. So there are lots and lots of novel versions with very different ideas running through them. So really one has only touched the sort of tip of the iceberg in trying to understand how this remarkable book was put together. But what I want to move on to now is is Vera Britton's pacifism. Because as I... Just before we move yeah. on uh, to cheer up would-be authors in the audience <laughs> can you remember how many publishers turned the book down? How many publishers turned Testament? Nobody turned Testament Youth down because Vera Britton only offered it to Galance and he accepted it. But her first novel, uh, The Dark Tide, um, was turned down by lots and lots of publishers. And she got quite cross, and she's actually very honest about this. Um, I always remember Elaine Morgan, who was a wonderful television dramatist who dramatised Testament of Youth for television in 1979, saying she found it so difficult when she started dramatising Testament of Youth because Vera Britton had absolutely no sense of humour. But what she thought was wonderful about uh, Vera Britton was her honesty, and her honesty particularly in the portrayal of her relationship, Vera Britton's relationship with Winifred Holby. So Winifred's novel, Anne to be Wold, gets accepted before the dark tide does, and they're living in a flat together in Bloom and Vera Britton is quite honest about the envy that somebody who was younger, supposedly a lot less experienced, should have their novel taken up and published before hers. Um, Sorry, go back. No, no, no. I I mean, pacifism, as I said, Vera Britton became a pacifist in 1937, but it's clear to me the Testament of Youth is essentially a pacifist's book because... In this last section of the book, Vera Britton is basically mourning for the failure of the League of Nations, for the failure of collective security. Because if you think in 1933, when Testament of Youth was published, in January that year, Hitler became Chancellor of Germany. Um, in February, you have the King and Country debate at the Oxford Union. Mussolini has already been there for some years. Mussolini has been there for some years. Um, 
Disarmament talks at Geneva are failing. Um, Japan, um, Japan attacks Manchuria in the spring, I think. So Vera Britton's book is looking forward to another war and trying to warn her generation not to fall into the trap that they had done in 1914. She isn't nominally a pacifist, but there are lots of ways in which the book is, is sort of moulded and, and things are changed in order to advance a pacifist argument. Um, so in 1937, she finally becomes a pacifist four years after Testament of is published, partly because of the new platform she has got as a, a, on both sides of the Atlantic as a result of being a best-selling author. And I just wanted to read something um, that she wrote in a, in a book of letters she published in 1942 called Humiliation with Honour, which were letters addressed to Shirley's brother, John. Who, um, Sher John and Shirley were both evacuated to the United States at that time. Passivism is nothing other than a belief in the ultimate transcendence of love over power. This belief comes from an inward assurance it is untouched by logic and beyond argument, though there are many arguments both for and against it, and each person's assurance is individual. His inspiration cannot arise from another's reason, nor can its authority be quenched by another's scepticism. And I, I suppose what I, I want to ask you, Shirley, because you've never been a pacifist, what is the place for the pacifist in society today? I mean, Well, I should step back a little bit. I've never been a pacifist, but I've certainly never been a militarist either. Um, I think I was probably influenced in my thinking above all by my father, funnily enough, rather more than my mother, um, because I do, did share and do share his view, which is essentially based upon Thomas Aquinas. In other words, there are a very small number of cases, and Aquinas from the 14th century lists the conditions that have to be met, where I think it's very hard to argue that there's not a case for war, but there's a very limited case for war. Why do I say that? Well, I think because, the, to me, the essential problem was my mother's passionate belief in the ability of peace to, uh, to as it were, override war, um, in my view, ran into the real difficulty of what happens if you're looking at something very close to pure evil. And I think that Hitler was pure evil after the Holocaust and the thing that drove him into the Holocaust. Now, generally speaking, I think most of the wars we fight are completely unnecessary. I think some of the more recent wars we fought have been disastrous. And I think that in most cases, a real attempt to negotiate the sources of conflict and to think through the history. And let me give you one example now that bothers me a great deal. I'm very troubled by the extent to which we have forgotten, for example, that Russia has been invaded time after time. It's a country which is paranoid about being invaded. And therefore, I'm not altogether surprised that given that uh, we in the Western Alliance have not ever said openly that we would believe that it would be better all round if Ukraine and Georgia, parts of the old Russian Empire, were respected as neutral countries, that we would all sign into their neutrality, at least for the time being, the next 10 years or whatever. It doesn't surprise me that you get Mr. Putin behaving in an extraordinarily irrational way in many ways because he lives in a country which is driven by passionate emotions which having spent a lot of time in Russia I can understand 
So I think that the West has been bad at understanding that, particularly countries like the United States and our own, which have never been invaded, never been occupied, never put under the heel of a conqueror in the way that most of the rest of Europe has. So my sense about that was that, generally speaking, there is a peaceful way out of conflict, that you have to exhaust that, as we've finally learned to do in Northern Ireland. But I think there are a very small number of cases, and in many ways they are actually specifically uh, delineated by Thomas Aquinas, where there is very little alternative at all, and fighting Hitler is such an example, as distinct from Kaiser Wilhelm, but I think you could certainly have negotiated your way out of the situations of the First World War. So that's the reason why I have a space between my mother and me. But generally speaking, I would certainly stand with her on the view about the, love of, the victory of love over power. It's very important to mention in this context, by the by, that the person who I think was the most influence on my mother at that time was uh, Dick Shepherd, who was the dean of St. Martin's in the Fields, and who was a passionate Christian uh, pacifist, and that had a good deal of influence, not only on my mother becoming being a pacifist, but some influence on her Humiliation with Honor, which is essentially a book where she finds her way back to religious belief, though not, I think, to conventional ecclesiology. I, I, I suppose, I mean, most of us, I suspect in this room, if we had been alive in 1940, would not have been pacifists. But, I mean, as somebody said, I think it was um, Middleton Murray, a, a, another pacifist, said that Nazism was the most difficult thing that a pacifist could confront. But I think it's also wrong for us not to try to define for you a little bit more clearly Vera Britain's pacifism, because, of course... It starts out in the 1930s, the late 1930s, as essentially being a political creed because she still hopes for a negotiated peace. She identifies with the Chamberlain government, with the appeasers. That's another problem for pacifists in in that the Peace Pledge Union, the pacifist organisation, which had enormous support in the mid-30s to which Vera Britain belongs, gets in bed with some very difficult... Um, characters. I mean, it's Lord Halifax, proto-fascists, the Duke of Hamilton. Um, it's an enormous school. I mean, an enormous sort of... Um, uh, people have widely differing views. But I think it's important to, to say that after 1940, um, Vera Britain moves towards um, a Christian pacifism. Is that, that what you... No, that's exactly what I think. And, and I should have had two other bits to this because they're important. <coughs> And one is that uh, she was one of the tiny number of non-Jewish Brits who were on the Gestapo blacklist. There were almost none. Um, I've got the page on which her name appears, and the other people on the page are Churchill and, oddly enough, my my father. And the reason that they were finally publicised, she'd never been publicised in any way like this before, was because all the names happened to begin with B and C. And in order to include Churchill... The, including the, 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 the newspapers, including the most popular newspapers, printed the page on which Churchill's name was. And by sheer luck, that was the same page on which my mother's name was and my father's name was. And that meant that an awful lot of... Uh, this goes deep into my memories. An awful lot of authors who I'd seen turn their heel on my mother when I was a child because she had come out as a pacifist and they wished to sell themselves as being uh, great supporters of the war... And they walked away from her because she was a pacifist and they wanted it to be seen that they were patriots. 
were not on the list anywhere, not to be found. And the result of that was that the sketch writers and the populist news journalists had to fall largely silent on the subject of my mother, who they'd been accusing of being uh, various kinds of things, including a sort of quizzling. The other thing about my mother, which I'm immensely proud of to this day, hugely proud of, is that she had the guts to come out against the mass bombing of Germany in 1943, uh, when, the, when you may remember the uh, USAF and the RAF together decided on a list of cities in Germany to be destroyed. And bizarrely enough, ironically you could say, the city which was more destroyed than any other, and it was not an attack on military targets, it was an attack on the morale of the, civili of the civilization of the citizens of Germany, and to a lesser extent citizens of one or two other countries, but primarily Germany. Um, it was an attempt to break their morale. It didn't succeed very well in that. In fact, it led to the mobilization of women to an extent they had not been mobilized before because the Aryan creed was that married women shouldn't be involved in war. It wasn't suitable for them. So they didn't actually mobilize married women until after the mass bombing of Germany where the mobilization of women leapt by about 20%. Uh, from about 60 to about 80% because it had ceased to be uh, a principle that could be upheld. But the key point about it was, going back to the cities that were chosen, the city that in Germany is known as Die Stadt ohne Nazis, the town without Nazis, was Hamburg, which had been consistently ruled by the Social Democrats in Germany and was destroyed to extent, more greater extent than any other city, including Dresden, and that city was probably the most anti-Nazi city in Germany. And I not only respected my mother for doing that, but I have to tell you that one of the great delights of my life is that Hamburg has now named their canal after my mother because they discovered that she was one of the few voices among the Allies that spoke out against this huge bombing of all the citizens in cities like Hamburg. I, th I think I just want to say two things. One is that that inward assurance about pacifism that Vera Britton speaks about in Humiliation and Honour, we must remember that it derives from having lost um, four people during the First World War, but also having nursed Germans um, in, uh, on the front line in 1917 and 18. Um, and I always remember Bernard Williams, the philosopher, Shirley's first husband, saying that it was impossible to argue against your mother's pacifism on the basis of, of, of how rooted it was in her experience, her own experience of war. But an, a, a sort of more general question I wanted to ask you was, um, George Orwell um, attacked Vera Britton for her position on, on mass bombing in, in an article in Tribune, in two articles in Tribune. Um, and he said that Vera Britton was setting out to humanize war. <coughs> Do you need to be a Nazi? Do you need to use Nazi methods to some extent to defeat Nazis? No. No, I'm quite no. I mean, if I didn't think so before, the recent study... Well, I was going to... Yeah. No, well, I, mean, I think one, one can't possibly argue about the information about the CIA... Yeah, exactly. ...and not say, I'm not prepared to use Nazi methods to defeat Nazis. I think we're one of the huge mistakes that we drift into, and that's why my mother felt, as you know, passionately about the mass bombing of Germany, was that the, the temptation for countries which fight in what seemed to be a moral war is to actually copy 
the enemy they're supposed to be opposing. And she saw very deeply, I think, in, in that mass bombing, a, a, a turning back by the United Kingdom and the United States to the levels of morality that were associated with the Nazis in people's minds, not with the Allies, and thereby essentially shooting their moral compass halfway through the war. I think she probably put it more strongly than I would have done, but I still think that she felt that very deeply, and there is a real danger. She said, I think, in one... She, throughout the war, uh, Vera Britton produced a fortnightly letter to peace lovers to act as a kind of sort of community spirit for, for people, for pastors in, in Britain. And in one of those letters she writes... I think something like the mercilessness of others does not release us from the obligation to control ourselves. No, that's exactly right. And she, she did become, I think because she became associated with Christian pacifism, I mean, she saw essentially, I think, the cross, Christ's cross, uh, as being a victory for those who refuse to adopt methods of the would-be victors, mm. the Romans, as it were, in that particular case. I mean, I have to say the British public did not support Vera Britain at all. Um, there's a letter from Rose Macaulay, who was um, another Somerville novelist, who was against the mass bombing of Germany, and she says it's just shocking, you go into shops everywhere and people are saying, give the Germans a good bombing, um, and we should throw Bishop Bell, who was a, a, not a pacifist, but, but um, was very much um, in, in the campaign against bombing um, on, on the bonfire. So that's no, let me come back on you. I don't agree with that, because one of the things that's always struck me very forcefully <coughs> is the, if, if you remember, there was a poll which was taken in the, towards the end of 43, 44, and that poll was two of the cities in that poll were Coventry and Bournemouth. Coventry came out with a substantial majority against the mass bombing of Germany. Bournemouth was overwhelmingly keen on the bombing of Germany. Nobody had dropped a bomb on Bournemouth. So I think you, one really has to say that there's a commonality of suffering, which indeed was what my mother showed in, in learning what she learned from nursing the German soldiers. And I think that commonality of suffering was actually very much true of the United Kingdom because, on the whole, the denigration of my mother, the rejection of her, was much greater in the United States mm, yes. than it ever was in Britain. But then, we, but then what's so extraordinary about the attitude to conscientious objectors in, in the Second World War in Britain is that people are so generous-spirited towards them, are so willing to accept... No, I fully people, accept that. They um, weren't in the First World War. They weren't in the First World War. But they never suffered. But then they, yes. Um, I, I mean, I'm not sure. I think, I think that, I mean, obviously the press stoked up sort of hatred of, um, of people who opposed mass bombing. Um, so I, I think it's, it's quite a, a difficult to know exactly how it stood. I mean, I, we have, I think, time for me to ask one more question before we throw it, the discussion out. But I, I mean, it's sad. I find your mother's later years, in a sense, I mean, it happens to writers quite often, but from 1945 to 1970, I mean, she wrote a lot of books. The sequel to Testament of Youth, Testament of Experience, which I think is quite a flawed book, personally, for all sorts of reasons, partly in that you can't be candid about your family who are alive in the unwise. same way that you can be candid Very about... Very unwise. Yes, exactly. Um, she 
I, I think you, you, want, you will dispute this, but I think she was quite disappointed that she hadn't had more recognition towards the end of her life. No, no, I wouldn't dispute that at all, but, but I made the point that she... She thought she would be a... She, she, she felt disappointed, but she, in a sense, felt that she was getting what she deserved. Uh, I think at, towards the very end of her life, not earlier. And I think I would rescue from your general remarks... Um, Testament of Friendship, which I actually think is a very good book. But, and that's, but that's before the end of the war, yes. Yeah. No, 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 I mean, no, that's so 1940. In, in, yeah. in the post, in the period in, after Testament of Right, yes. I think I would put Testament of Friendship very high up. And I think it was one of the books. I mean, let me just add, it, as it were, it's a thought, uh, which this audience is much too young to share. Uh, generally speaking, friendships between women were deeply suspect. Um, women weren't supposed to have friends. Uh, if you look at the sort of Hollywood films of the time, they mostly consist of people like Barbara Stanwyck fighting with people like Myrna Loy for the nice boy next door. And the one thing that's quite clear is that the opposition between the women for the men is so strong that the idea of a friendship between women, a trustworthy friendship, is almost sort of inconceivable. This made my mother very cross because she felt she had a real friendship with Winifred Hope, who had been wonderful to her in their period after the war when they were both at Oxford together, and therefore she resented the way in which the assumption was made, still very commonly, that women weren't, friend, weren't able to be friends. They were cats fighting one another. And I think Testament of Friendship is a lovely book because what it brings out is the depth of that friendship and how much they meant to one another. And I think that's lifted the whole idea up. I mean, I think now... The idea of friendship between women is a very real one. And I think people are, are sort of understood to be able to be friends. I really think my mother did an awful lot for that relationship of women for one another, towards one another, by writing that book. So I'm a great champion of testament of friendship. But do you want me to be candid? <laughs> Well, you don't agree. I think you're wrong. Well, no, the only thing I, I absolutely accept is it is a very important book in terms of, of stating that women can have close friendships that aren't sexual or anything like that. They're, they're, it's, it was an extraordinary friendship. And, but while I'm certain your mother never had any erotic feelings towards Winifred Holtby, I still think that something of the strength of, of the feeling that Winifred Hobby had for Vera Britton and the great service that Winifred Hobby did in so many ways for your mother was born out of a very real love that sort of might have strayed over the line if, if your mother had been receptive to it, which she no, wasn't. No, I don't disagree with that. I think that but you have true. disagreed with that in the past. No, I right? don't want to disagree with that. No, no, I mean, when I... I have discovered in the past, what I've pointed out is that the that Winifred Holtby had a, a, a deeply unsatisfactory boyfriend, but she mm. still had a boyfriend who lasted almost all till her dying day. And that was, he was, uh, Bill was in fact, as you know and I know, a rolling stone that rolled around the world. And was very unsatisfactory because every time he was meant to be home, he was in the Yukon or somewhere else. So I think it's quite clear that... that um, I mean, Winifred may have been, uh, she may have been bisexual, I don't know. But clearly there was a man in her life that she referred back to and who she waited for at times and who my mother clearly <coughs> thought as being somebody that she was very, very much attracted to. But I think he was gay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this is, this is getting a... 
Anyway, I can thank see you. Gold Winder from, there's no reason to think that Bill was gay. Uh, um, I don't think Bill anyway, was anything. Um, anyway, thank you so much. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry to end on the really... Uh, um, anyway, all I can, we were going to talk a bit about the film, but I don't think we have time, and if anybody wants to ask about the film, but I do urge you to go and see the film, because you can't imagine how difficult it is to, to get an independent film about a serious subject made nowadays. Um, and Shirley has a very high opinion of it. I do. I, I don't know whether people realise, but in case any of you have got children you're taking to Paddington for Christmas... Uh, it's worth your knowing that the producer of Testament of Youth is also the producer of Paddington. <laughs> and she is a wonderful producer, Rosie Allison. I mean, not many people who could make a brilliant film about a teddy bear <laughs> and also a brilliant film about a great authoress and do it both completely satisfactorily. So I do commend both films to you. <laughs> but I have to say I had nothing to do with Paddington. And Mark and I spent a lot of time making sure that the other one wasn't a Hollywood movie, but we can't stop Paddington being a Hollywood movie, or at least a British version. Well, thank you both very much indeed. Um, we've got a good chunk of time for questions now, so I'm just going to start by taking people individually. If it turns out there's a lot of people, I might uh, group you. And if you could just indicate, um, if it's a question to one person, perhaps just indicate, otherwise I might... Um, uh, indicate myself. So can we just um, start with this gentleman who's got his hand up over on the wall and could you just say who you are and, and where you're coming from so our speakers know. Uh, hi, thank you for such a great talk. I'm uh, Get Your Share on Twitter. Uh, you say there is uh, peace in Northern Ireland. I think that is a gross estimate. At best it's a quietly repressed uh, conflict going on there. There can only be peace in Northern Ireland when the Protestant and Catholic Church leaders are held in court and tried for their war crimes. Uh, because of your religious beliefs, I think it means that you have a conflict of interest when seeking justice and peace. Would you agree that's true? Thank you. Okay. Um, so, um, something. A pe pe you, your position on peace in Northern Ireland is flawed, is the question. On peace and that is the question. Yeah. I want to know some evidence. Um, do, do you have any? Would you like to say anything about Northern Ireland or peace in Northern Ireland? There's no no need for you to do so. But if you... no, no, I'm not trying to evade it. I'm just mm. puzzled, honestly puzzled. Uh, um, I mean, I was um, also puzzled. It's uh, puzzled. Well, I, I was a junior minister in Northern mm. Ireland because Harold Wilson, who was always very good at that kind of thing thought that there would be a brilliant combination of a Protestant Home Secretary, who was Jim Callaghan, and a Roman Catholic, which I am, a junior minister. Well, it was a typical Harold shift, rather clever, and the general appearance of it was rather good. But, as you might imagine, it wasn't very successful because the unionists said, whenever they were sent off to see me, that they were willing to see me, but they wouldn't be talking about anything serious. They would be waiting for Jim Callaghan to come and talk to them about something serious. So, I don't know. I mean, one did the best one could, but I don't know quite why that adds up to any particular flaw that I should be no. responding on. Okay, thank you. Um, could we have the, the lady with the gla glasses at the back um, just wait for the microphone and just, just say who you are and where you're from? Hi, uh, Ruth Van Dyke. I'm from London South Bank University. 
Two things. The first, first of all, I, actually, I think I'm getting choked up. How important your mother's book was to me and to my mother. So, I don't know why I'm feeling. Anyway, it's just to say, I was a young feminist at that time when it came out, and how important that book was in giving us an understanding of the past. And I shared it with my mother, who would be 93 at that time. And it woke things in her. So I think that's a a really, you know, that that book was very seminal for for many of us. And I guess my question is, because I shared it with my mother and it was really important for our discussions about the person that she used a Quaker and became a Quaker, is how did Vera Britton influence you? very hard, it's a difficult question to answer. Um, I think, for one thing, one has to remember that my mother was brought up, born in the Victorian age, and therefore she had to spend a lot of time fighting the assumptions about what women were capable of. And it's worth saying, it's a very important fact, I think, and I didn't know about it until quite recently because I've been talking about my mother quite a lot in different parts of the country. I didn't know, for example, that the British Army specifically rejected voluntary aid detachment nurses because they were women for at least the first year and a half of the war. In in fact, until the huge losses of the Somme and places like that were clearly understood, the basic attitude of the British Army was that young women, especially middle-class young women, should not be nursing. The, answer, the argument made in some quarters was that they'd never seen a naked human body which was male, and therefore they shouldn't be forced to do so. Now, the Countess of Sutherland, who was the leader of one of the major voluntary medical groups, all of them women, women doctors, women nurses, women orderlies, was rejected by the British Army completely in 1914 when she came with a complete team of qualified medical people on the grounds that the British Army was not going to welcome women nurses. I only mention that story because it shows how different attitudes were and how much my person like my mother had to essentially confront. Um, And also, it wasn't just you had to confront the received views like that, but also, of course, to some extent, the views of Oxford, that she was wasting her time completely in actually choosing to nurse, which she regarded as a low-class profession, instead of sticking with Oxford and remaining in, uh, to sort of running to get a first, which was what the Dons most wanted. So I think one of the things I have to recognise about my mother was that she lived from an era when very little was expected of women, when they were thought to be uh, weak and dependent creatures, all the way through to the point where she becomes recognised as being a a, a full-scale author, so to speak, with her own views and her own opinions and an ability to argue and all the rest of it. It's worth adding to all that that one of the things my mother was not was, in the modern sense, a celeb. She didn't like that kind of celebrity thing very much. She was quite a private person in many ways. And although she was actually very good at public speaking and obviously felt at ease public speaking, she didn't feel at all at ease in sort of doing a whole series of interviews about herself. So the celebrity culture was very different then than it is now. 
But in that, there's a book, isn't there, called Lady into Woman, which is 1953, which exactly expresses what you've been saying. The Victorian lady becomes a fully-fledged woman. And your mother dedicated that to you, didn't she? Because she recognised that the age you were growing up in was going to have a different attitude to women and, and women's talents. Yes, I, I suggested the title to her. Actually. Oh, yes, yes, yeah. yes. No, that's why she dedicated it to me. Oh, it's why, yeah, well, no, I think she dedicated it to you as well, because, she, yeah. you know, she saw you as... Uh... But it, it's quite important. I mean, the very word lady has around it a kind of wall. There were things ladies shouldn't know and ladies shouldn't do. And you had to overcome that convention before you could actually be fully accepted as a, as a human being. It's a very special kind of human being. Um, I always get called in the House of Lords, Milady, and I always say to them, well, no, not really, um, because I don't like being in the House of Lords as a lady. I like being in the House of Lords because I love debating and I like arguing my case and so on. But I find it uncomfortable, and I'm one who will be in favour of an elected House of Lords when the time comes, but absolutely not not one that depends in the current way on the system that we have in the House of Commons, which makes it very difficult to actually take a debate into account because you're always sort of lining up to behave as you should behave from the whips. It's a difficult dilemma and people need to think about it. Okay, um, could I have, uh, on the back of that, I'm going to say, could I have the woman over there with the glasses um, and the red scarf? And again, just say who you are, please. Thank you for a very interesting talk. Um, My name's Kavita Kopas. Um, I'd be interested to know how optimistic you feel about um, pacifism as a sort of political position in the sort of coming, say, 10, 20 years, given that conflict requires or the whole process of going to war requires a process of dehumanisation and distancing yourself from that emotional connection you feel to another human being. So given that we live in such technologically complicated times, does pacifism have a role in the coming years? I'm trying to get Mark to No, I, I really have... No, you must answer that. It's really not my, my thing. You have so much to say about this. You wrote an article about it quite recently. I don't feel very optimistic, if you want me to know. Um, I think my great hope, if I can put it very quickly, is that the scale of the challenges to us as the human race may gradually overcome the scale of challenges to us as nation-states. The greatest challenge of all is unquestionably, to my mind, climate change. I think it's more important than all the rest put together. And I think if we begin to realise as human beings the huge challenge to us, and we have very little time left of climate change, we may be compelled to work together for fear of our own destruction as a species, putting it very high. I think we go on living comfortably with the idea that we're not under challenge, but we are. It's quite clear after we now see yet again another year in which we are the 14th hottest year in the whole history of civilization that something like the edge of the abyss is coming an awful lot closer. And what I hope very much is that we will see, partly because young people understand this challenge better than people my age do, that we may be able to overcome 
national divisions in the effort to try to deal with the challenge to the human race as a whole. I've seen nations come together, European nations for example, at the challenge of another war. That's what the underlay the creation of the European Union. We've forgotten it. We already forget it's about that. We think, we think it's all about cucumbers and tomatoes. But it was originally about stopping another war in Europe. And it was the memory of the two world wars that forced us to think politically about a way out of that situation. And now we need to go a whole, piece, a whole step higher to see climate change. It's not the only one, but it's probably the most prominent one. As a challenge we have to meet by overcoming our ancient political divisions. Whether we'll do it or not, I don't know. But I hope we will. I would just like to add a piece of my own autobiography very, very quickly. If I hadn't read Testament of Youth, I, I came from a very unpoliticized family. I, we didn't talk about politics when I was growing up. I wouldn't have gone on the march against the Iraq war. Um, how many people here went on the march against the Iraq war? A lot of them. Um, but that, that's the power of, of great literature, for me anyway. Yes, could we have the woman with the dark hair in the middle here, please? Hello, uh, my name's Letty. I'm 26 years old, and I'm actually reading Testament of Youth for the first time at the moment. Um, I have a question which can be answered by either Lady Williams or Mark, I'm sure, which is that there's a comment quite early on in the book which really struck me, where Vera's writing, presumably, in the, in the 1930s, and she says that young women and men in her time would, be, would have been able to cope with the war ten times better than her generation were. And I'm just interested if... if uh, Lady Williams or Mark has a comment on why she wrote this, whether you think it, it was true at that time and c indeed could it even be true now? Well I'll start but I've got to make sure that Mark comes in on this one um, the, the gap between, at least in my perception, the gap between the so-called home front and the real front was huge in the First World War I remember coming across a bill in uh, some sort of box things left behind by my grandparents which had a bill from Harrods to Captain Britain for the supply of a Sam Brown belt which would be taken out to the front by no doubt Harrods uh, you know Harrods uh, assistance I don't know but you get again and again this pattern of an extraordinary gap between the two almost no sense at all of the commonality of suffering except the loss of individual people so that what you also get I mean you, for example you saw in the you'll see in the film the arrival of the boy from the telegraph not the newspaper but the telegraph system carrying yet more information about the loss of a boy or a very very rarely a girl in the war to the homes from which they came you got a very great deal I think of, of softening, softening of the suffering most young men were, pre were presented as having lost their lives and then very quickly not having suffered very much but died quite quickly and so forth there was a total unawareness a refusal even to consider really the impact of that war, even though there was day after day after day with lists and lists and lists of people who were casualties. I think perhaps it was almost more than people could bear to actually face the truth. 
Um, so they didn't. They went on living lives where there was this huge gap between the two. Ever since you've had radio, not alone television, and newspaper reports and pictures, the position has changed. Even for people who aren't personally directly involved, there is a sense of the war going on. We know more about the war in Afghanistan than people in my mother's, mother's time knew about what was going on in France. Far more. And we get lots of stories about how they died and what happened, and about people being killed. So I think that there was a gap that was almost beyond reaching. And that's one of the reasons, I don't know if Mark would agree with this, but in my view, one of the reasons for the extraordinary impact of the poetry and the novels and the plays about the First World War was that it filled a huge gap in people's knowledge and awareness of that war. They knew their kids were involved in it. They didn't know what it was like to be in it. And it was only after the war that much of the information about how dreadful it was became publicly known and became therefore closely followed. So I think she was right. I think even the Second World War, where we, in a way, had the benefit of sharing the blitz, if I can put it like that, uh, made an awful lot of difference to the way people see it. And let me finally take the example of the Iraq war that some of you marched in. I was in that march as well, the only party that was publicly against the war in Iraq. But it's also true to say that you have had a great effect because this is the first war that has become, in the public perception, a huge mistake. Not the First World War, not the Second World War, but the Iraq War. And in doing that, you created or changed the values of politics to an extraordinary extent, more than most people who are on that march realise. I, I think I can't say anything more than um, so. All right, um, I'm just going to go over here. I'll come back to this side in a minute. Um, the, the bloke with his hand up at the back, please. Is it, and I just remember up there as well. Thank you. Um, you I, I share your view... Just say who you are first. Oh, sorry, uh, Dan Colvin. Uh, I share your view in reluctantly not being a pacifist. Uh, you've mentioned absolute evil in conversation. Um, I'm wondering how you would define absolute evil that you would combat and be prepared to take action against. Um, and if you've got the time to extend that against what I would also define as absolute evil of far-right politics that we're seeing the rise of. But I am extending the sentiment there of absolute evil. So perhaps if we don't have the time to, to discuss what you believe is absolute evil that we would be prepared to fight against. Thank you. I don't know. I've often, I've often asked myself about the how one defines absolute evil. And I think it's, it's worth mentioning. I, I quite often lecture about the 20th century. And one of the really striking things is that people do remember things like the Holocaust. But they tend to forget completely that the number of people who lost their lives in Russia under Stalin, the number of people who lost their lives in China under Mao, are as great in both cases as all the casualties of the First World War. Yet somehow we don't think of that genocide as being as evil as what the Nazis did. Because the Nazis actually turned it into a philosophy. 
And on the whole, people like Stalin and Mao simply saw it as an aspect of power. It went back to the lack of any restrictions on the use of power. I think one of the reasons I'm attracted by uh, Thomas Aquinas is because he thinks very deeply about what should be the limits on power and what enables somebody to run a legitimate government. In the 14th century, of course, there wasn't a democracy, but a morally acceptable government. So, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think I have to say that I am not aware of a an absolute evil in the individual sense of an individual person, except obviously Hitler springs to mind. But it's extraordinary how far. And a, a philosophy of evil can throw out from a country or a or an individual government the sense of the limitations that any power should accept. Um, I can't answer the second part of your question, I'm afraid, um, because it would take me a very long time and we haven't got it. But that's the best I can do at the moment, and I'd be grateful to know your definition of absolute evil. Um, do you want to quickly offer a definition? <laughs> <coughs> well, I think I think we share the, the same view. I think um, I guess when it when it infringes upon the liberties of others, um, to an extent that one can't live their life without harassment, without uh, being able to express their own view, um, their way of life, would be. A very general opinion, but it's but it's very difficult to define in practice. And I guess I, I was very interested because of the mention of absolute evil. It's um it's just it's a very difficult to define uh, concept as a as a liberal. And I was wondering where that line would be drawn. Okay. You're the chairman. Yeah, well, I, I, I had the, the feeling I had the feeling this was turning into one of those Harvard seminars that they broadcast on the BBC with Michael Sandel and the audience. But I, I think we'll desist from that for the moment. I just want to see: is there anyone up there? Because I haven't been looking. If, if, if there is, just wave your hands vigorously. Otherwise, can I come? There is. Ah, this 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 woman here. Yeah. Hi, I'm Jo Godfrey. I work for a book publisher. Um, I wondered if you could talk briefly about the film adaptation and particularly any challenges that there were in adapting the book. Speak up a bit. Sorry. Um, about the film adaptation and particularly if there were any challenges in adapting Testament of Youth, the book, uh, for a sort of a, a new generation, more modern audience. Thank you. Oh, I, I think it that's directed at you. Yeah, yours do it. Oh, right. Um, it is an enormous challenge and... As I say, for six years I've looked, and Shirley has looked at scripts. Um, the first script had a totally fictitious version of Shirley's father being dragged up by drag, dragged up Ludgate Hill by Vera Britton, um, which made no sense at all. So, um, uh, I think I have learned an awful lot through this process because. The television series, which was a five-part series, five times 55 minutes, um, did such justice to the book, um, is a very, very clever ad adaptation without being slavish. Um, and right at the beginning, I wrote a treatment for a film, BBC Films and Heyday Films, which they promptly put in the bottom drawer. And I completely understood why they did that, because if I look at the treatment now, um, and I've reproduced a bit of it in a, in a new book I've done about the film, um, 
I can't change anything. Everything has to be historically accurate to the minutest degree. Um, And as somebody said, um, not only can't I change anything, I can't leave anything out. So my film version would have been at least seven hours long. Um, So I'm very conscious um, of how one has to change. I'll, I'll give you two examples. One very obvious thing from the first discussions we had about the film that had to go. Um, was Vera Britton's time nursing in Malta. Now, if you'd had scenes in Malta, it would have been such a wonderful visual contrast to the scenes set in France or or, or in in England during the war. But it would have just taken the narrative in, in another direction and it would have been very difficult to pull it back and there simply wasn't the time. Um, And one of the things that the woman, Juliette Tawhidi, who was eventually um, appointed as the screenwriter, explained to me is that the art of screenwriting, if you're doing a a film based on a real life, uh, a real person's life, is, is not to try and cram too much in. Because if you cram too much in, it just becomes episodic. You have to create a, a narrative line and you af- have to um, give the world of the film that you're repre- a sort of integrity of its own. So it may change things, but they sort of all add up. So, for instance... Um, in Testament of Youth, in real life, Roland Leighton was initially rejected um, to serve in the British Army because he had poor eyesight. He eventually got round that and, and got sent to, to, to Flanders and to France. Um, in the film, the person who's rejected with poor eyesight um, is Victor Richardson, um, the young man who's a school friend from Uppingham. And part of the reason the screenwriter did that is because in one of the most tragic bits of the book, and if you read the letters that Vera Britton and her brother exchanged about Victor when he's blinded at the Battle of Arras and comes back to England um, and dies shortly thereafter, um, it obviously makes it much more a much more intense, dramatic moment if he's been rejected because of eyesight and then, of course, is blinded, loses the sight in, in both his, his eyes. Now, I would find it very difficult to do that, um, but somebody who comes to the material fresh obviously is able to do that. Um, Sorry, does that answer something? <laughs> do, do you want to say something about that? No, I think that's exactly right. Right. Um, okay. Why don't I just uh, take uh, this gentleman here, and then after you, we'll come to the woman in the glasses behind. Uh, the the man with the glasses, and then the woman with the glasses. <laughs> uh, this question is to Lady Williams. You alluded to the CIA report that was recently released, uh, which defines the tactics used by the U.S. post-9-11. My question to you is in two parts. Do you believe, or why do you think the U.S. released a summary report as opposed to the full 6,000-page full report? And secondly, do you believe that the summary report has been compromised by the fact that the full report hasn't been released. Sorry, and you, you, who are you? Andrea Russo. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think that's right. Um, I, think that, I think that a Senate committee 
which was chaired by Senator Feinstein, who's a woman of considerable integrity, knew perfectly well that a 6,000 word, let alone a 600 page report, would not attract the interest of the popular press. I mean, no doubt it will attract the interest of the professional foreign policy, etc. press, but that won't be one that would affect the immediate decision as to whether the CIA should be allowed to continue with this kind of thing or to keep it secret. She would have wanted, as the senator in charge of the committee, the maximum awareness of what had been done. She realised, as I would realise, that a relatively short report would be much more likely to be read and thought carefully about than a long, long report which would in fact be read uh, eventually anyway by the professionals. So I think she did the exactly right thing. She had the guts to print the shorter version, but the shorter version does in fact include some of the most uh, extreme reports about things like waterboarding and so forth. And I think therefore that she did her job which was the job she was given by the Senate as the chairman of the committee to make people aware of what was going on. And I think that actually what we'll see now as a result of that, not least because President Obama is still the president, and he probably won't be in two years' time, to actually get the impact of that awareness of what the CIA had done in secret, by the by, it's quite clear in many cases the president had no idea of what was going on, nor was he told it was, that I think it had the impact it needed to have in order to make people ask themselves whether the CIA should not be bound by much more strict constitutional rules about what it can do and what it can't do. So I, I, I applaud Diana Feinstein, and I think we will see huge repercussions for the CIA. Okay, and now uh, the woman... Could you put your hand up so the man can... Yeah. Thank you. Thanks. My name's Judith Russell. Um, this is a little personal. I hope you won't mind. But I just wondered how growing up with the book um, so public, um, with the awareness of your mother's earlier life, uh, her, her, her strong love for her fiancé, for your uncle, um, her friends, and the whole life that disappeared before you were even conceived. I wondered how that uh, affected you growing up. And also there's um, a very moving line, I think, in, in your fa- one of your father's letters to your mother when, he says, when he's trying to persuade her to, to marry him, when he says, well, I know that, uh, that your, your work will, will always be more important to you than I am. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, what would it have felt like as, a, as a, an adolescent growing up with that, reading that book about your mother and having that, uh, did it cast a shadow over your family life or was it just part of the furniture? Really not. I mean, by the time, by the time I get sent to America, and it is important to mention the fact that my parents knew that if there was a, a Nazi invasion of Britain, because they were on the Gestapo blacklist, they would have both been put to death immediately. And they were very high-minded people. They didn't attempt to go to America themselves, although my mother certainly had an invitation to do so. They felt they had to stay, but they also felt that they had no moral right to condemn my brother and me to, uh, to being orphans, 
without giving us the chance to decide for ourselves whether we wanted to be. So they chose quite deliberately to send us to America but not to go themselves, which was very unusual. Most most of those evacuations to America, or not most, but many, meant the mother went with the children. And for my mother, that was quite out of the question. She wouldn't have dreamt of it. So I go over to America in the after, well, really, in the period in which my mother confronts the conflict, if you like to put it that way, the confrontation between her role as a uh, leading world author and then the coming of a war which seems to undo much of what she said and the pain and agony of that time escaped me. I wasn't there to see it and I was too young anyway to know much about it. When I come back at the age of 13 by way of two months um, detention in Portugal I won't go into the details of why but I was detained for two months in Portugal in Estoril uh, before I actually finally made it back I by that time had got so used to running my own life and to having to be in charge of myself that by the time I get back to England at the age of 13 just beginning to be 13 I'm the whole idea of being dependent on my parents is so odd to me that I've already become pretty independent myself. As a relatively independent teenager, I then talked to my mother on the basis of something close to equality. In other words, I talked to her as a friend, not as a mother on whom I'm dependent. And so I then had long discussions by this time, back in 1943-4, about her, about her memories of the First World War and so on. But I had almost none before, and you don't when you're nine, have very many discussions of this kind, and I didn't have any. So by the time I get back to being with my mother and father, they're both individuals and I'm an individual, and I feel relatively grown up. I wasn't, but in my own head I was. And therefore I was able to talk to her very much on the basis of equality, and on that she was excellent. She was a first-rate mother for an older child. I suspect that she was far too preoccupied in writing to be much of a mother to a younger child, but I didn't notice that I wasn't there. I should just, just add one thing, because although Shirley is absolutely right, her mother wouldn't have gone to America, um, it nevertheless was a, a, a source of, of extreme heartbreak. She would have liked to visit her children when they were evacuated for a brief period, but she was banned by the government. Quite shockingly, she was stopped. As a pacifist, they realised the power of her work, and the government wouldn't allow her to go to the United States for the entire war. Right. Um, could we have this gentleman here with the glasses? Just wait for the microphone and, again, say who you are. Uh, my name's Ernie Whittaker. Uh, my question is to both of you, actually, please. Um, if we in Britain and have lived this last 30 years with all the conflicts we've had, what do you think our approach would be? How would she be approaching the perceived Islamist threat? Gosh. Wow. Um, well, it's a blockbuster of a question. <laughs> I did make some indication of it when I spoke earlier about the about jihadis having this ludicrous uh, ceremonial attitude towards conflict and war. I think my mother would have found that terribly upsetting. I think she would then ask questions about whether their destruction by drones 
um, would actually feed into some change towards opposing conflict or would actually lead to an escalation to more conflict. I don't really know what she would have said. I think she'd be inclined towards the second point of view because she was always rather optimistic about human beings. I don't know whether I would believe that, um, but I'm pretty certain that if we don't find some way on which we can meet on common ground, which probably means uh, trying to make common cause with more moderate Muslims, um, I think we just would head in the same direction as the First World War. So I think the only uh, there's no answer, no obvious answer, but part of the response has to be a greater understanding between Muslims and non-Muslims of the heritage, if you like, the myth. We talked about the First World War myth, and that was very important for the First World War. I suspect there's a Muslim myth which is very important for the jihadis, but we don't know it, so we have to try to discover what it is. Um, I, I can't comment better than Shirley has on, on the current problems regarding Muslims and non-Muslims, but what does strike me about a war... I was at, I was at university um, in 1982 when the Falklands War started, um, and I remember watching, as we all did, the television pictures of, of, of um, soldiers leaving on... on ships from Portsmouth and seeing the extraordinary jingoism and excitement and patriotism um, of course on a much smaller scale than in 1914 but a sense that um, the glamour of war was still somehow embedded in that um, that we hadn't lost that um, and that, that struck me very forcibly um, and one of the things that, that is very sad um, that I'm sure Vera Britain would have reacted to is the fact that more Falklands veterans have committed suicide committed suicide in the years after the war than were actually killed, more British Falklands veterans committed suicide because of lack of care from the army and the Ministry of Defence in the years following the Falklands War and they were actually killed in the war itself. Right. I think we've only got time for one more question and we might see what else... I just wanted to see if there's nobody over there because I can't see behind there. OK. Um, who would like to...? Uh, you would. <laughs> Um, I, well, I think that, that woman there also had her hands up. If you could both just very quickly, one after another. Yes, you, but first you with the scarf and then the woman with the glasses. Just, just pass it to this woman first. But if you could be succinct, that would be nice. I'll try to be as quick as I can. Uh, I, this, is a, this is a comment to Lady Williams. I don't think anyone is disputing the losses uh, during the Second World War across the world and in, regarding the involvement of those who... Who, who were involved in the Second World War, but I don't think you should minimize or deprecate the losses at Auschwitz and Belsen and 50 other concentration camps. Jews were citizens, they were civilians. Wars these days do not even target civilians. You have, you have the demilitarized zones and the militarized zones, and you fight in the militarized zones. Now, if you want to bring it to today's conception, you give Israel a bomb and then say, fine, now, you're, now you're, you have a proper uh, arsenal that you can defend yourself. 
but it's still jew-baiting, and it's still putting uh, small, indefensible nations in a corner, or an indefensible ethnicities in a corner. So I really query your take on this issue. All right, thank you. And if you could just quickly pass it to this uh, woman here, please. Hi, um, to both of you, um, but maybe a little bit more to Mark, just about the film. Um, I've been lucky enough to see the film already, and I think it's brilliant, but um, I felt a little bit that the, um, Vera's friendship with Jeffrey is slightly takes a back seat. Do you feel yeah. that that has kind of yeah. happened? Do you think that's diminishes it a little bit? Well, the reason that happened, we, we, every dramatisation, I was involved in a radio dramatisation of the letters that I edited, co-edited um, 15 years ago, and we always have had to fight to have Geoffrey in it at all. Every time a dramatist comes along, they say, well, we'll cut Geoffrey out. <laughs> and you say, well, no, the whole point is that there are four men in the book. Um, there, there was a scene in the film um, which is uh, based on one in the book where Vera Britton goes to visit Geoffrey at Fishman Hall in early 1916 and he's suffering from shell shock um, and she then starts going to concerts with him and, and it is regrettable that their friendship isn't really explored in the film but the trouble is that other things there, there, were, sh- film, there were scenes shot with um, Vera Britton's um, nurse um, Queen Alexandra nurse um, Hope Milroy played by Hayley Atwell which didn't get into the final cut and the film is two hours nine minutes Long and it's it is regrettable. The, the, the Jeffrey scenes will be on the DVD. Um, <laughs> but can, can you tell me? I'm interested in because one of the things I'm I'm not meant to be critical of the film in any way. Um, and I think it is a wonderful film, and it is so moving. And if it hadn't moved um, the audience, the people that have seen it so far, then it could be said to have failed. And it certainly moves everybody, a lot of people who see it, because when you're at a screening, you hear people sort of openly crying. But the thing I always try to push much harder for, um, and I don't know whether I was right, is, is Vera Britton's feminism should be more strongly represented in the film. So, for instance, in the film, Roland asks her to marry him when, she's, when he's home on his fine, what turns out to be his final leave. And she seems very happy with that idea. In real life, if you read Vera Britton's diary, even more than Testament of Youth, there's a real battle. She's worried about being owned by a man. She's worried about accepting a ring on his behalf. Now, I was told, and perhaps it's true, that young women don't care as much about the history of feminism and of, of women like that because so many battles have been won. But what, what do you think? the lady who who made the point before that it was a perfectly legitimate comment that she made but I saw no point in responding because um, 
I think it's a perfectly fair point of view. Uh, I don't completely share it, but it's a fair point of view. Pardon? No, of course. I'm here listening. Um, well, uh, no, I think... Uh, okay. Uh, could, I, could I just uh, say one more, more thing? Um, Kit Harrington is brilliant as Ronan Layton. I don't know if anybody watches Game of Thrones. I never had. Um, and the actress who plays Vera Britain, Alicia Vikander, is Swedish very beautiful, but absolutely extraordinary. I never believed she would turn out to be so remarkable in, in the performance. I hope I've sold it to you anyway. She has a, she, just to add one sentence to that, I mean, she has an ability to reflect feeling just by literally the lifting of an eyelid or an eyebrow. It's the most extraordinarily subtle performance. And you're mesmerised by her face. Yes, you are. It's, it's just a, extraordinary. It's, it's not anyway. just beauty, it's subtlety. It's amazing. Okay, well, I mean, it just falls to me to thank our speakers. I mean, I think we've had a wonderful mix of expertise. I mean, really both personal and scholarly about a, a remarkable woman in, in the history of Britain. Um, we've also heard something about both the quality and the limits of the pacifism which emerged from the experience of the First World War. And I think finally we've heard in various ways something of the contemporary resonance of, of both that quality and of those limits. So I just ask you in conclusion including to join me in thanking very much our two speakers. Thank